Hello and welcome back to Elrod's Educational Lectures. In today's episode, we will be talking more about the Ottoman Empire and the Jap- Japanese imperialism. Thank you. We'll finish up the Ottomans today, talk about what's going on there a little bit, and then get into Japan, and at least begin introducing that. You might be able to get a little bit of that. You guys know a little bit ahead of the other class, so that's good. Um, probably even you guys up a little bit today. But uh, with China, got done or good? We'll do chaotically. Yeah, does it have to be that big a deal, or I mean, all right. So um, with China, somebody recap a little bit for me the internal struggles that are going on with China coming into the 1800s and during the 1800s. Yes, sir. Okay, and this is starting to really take a its toll on food production and those kind of things because unlike what we see in Europe, Western Europe, in those cases, the agricultural revolution took place and then we saw more food and population growth. In China, it's kind of the inverse. We've seen population growth without these agricultural innovations and those kind of things. And so there's a lot of starvation and this urbanization with people that don't have jobs because there's not an industrialization movement to go with it. So it's a smoother population growth in Western Europe, which is not totally smooth. Any urbanization of that magnitude is difficult. But in China, it's not really really very smooth at all. So that's definitely one of the big internal troubles. Yes? They've still been ruled by the minority years. Okay, so there are social tensions between the rulers and everybody else, seeing seeing those guys as foreigners and the Qing dynasty is not really familiar with what's going on there in China. For sure. What else? Yes, sir. I don't know if maybe more food seems like later, like was the British illegally selling the opium. You have an opium epidemic that's going on in the 1800s, right? Um, which is going to create some external tr- uh, problems too. We'll get into that in a second. But within, you know, this addiction to opium is getting out of control. And it's creating some, well, there's a lot of social problems that go with that, but also economic problems as far as productivity and production. And a lot of this silver that Ethan was talking about a lot yesterday, a lot of this silver is making its way out of China to buy opium and this other stuff. And it's starting to buy other Western goods and those kind of things. And politically, this is a breakdown of their infrastructure because a lot of the local governing officials are really doing the bidding of the British instead of the Qing dynasty because they're paying them off to do that. So there's a lot of issues that are coming with that opium trade for sure. All right. Um, now, external problems. What are we seeing? That's one of them with the British infiltration. What else? And with the Qing, you know, we talked about the Qing dynasty and they're very inefficient as rulers, so that's one of the internal things there too. But yes? Would slavery revolts count as external? Well, the, there's not really slavery there, but peasant revolts are internal. The Taiping Rebellion, that's a big internal struggle as well. What else? External. Losses to the French, Japanese. Right. 
two opium wars against the British, the Sino-Japanese War, uh, the, um, French, the Sino-French War. All of these are huge, humiliating defeats that really are, the result is carving China up into spheres of influence, right? So external threats as far as extraction of materials, domination of marketplaces, domination of Western control that's all starting to find its way into China. All right, that's a good way to sum it up there. All right, so China has some issues of their own. What's the result of this going into the 20th century for China? Christian? They lose the kind of dynastic system, the government they've had since ever. Okay, and what's the catalyst for all of that change? What's the reaction to Western incursion and Qing rulers? And well, at first they tried nationalism. Well, they tried it a couple times, right? Boxer Rebellion, which was crushed, but that's a start of a nationalist pride. And then the nationalists take on a Western mentality, right? And this is a big theme to remember, because this is going to show up big with Japan. They start to, in China, adopt Western processes. And they start to adopt Western ways. Not full-out industrialization, but they try some things there. They adopt you know, the new republic that's taking place in 1911 that's replacing that dynastic word. That's a Western-style republic. So this nationalism is going to start adopting some of the Westernization in order to help try to modernize. It's still not quite there yet. The 20th century is still going to be pretty turbulent for the Chinese. But it took them a long time to get there. All of those defeats and the rebellions and things the 1800s, it took 100 years to come to that decision of we got to modernize. And it's a little bit too late at that point in some cases. Well, the Ottomans are going to do a little bit differently, and the J Japanese are going to have a whole different mentality with that too. So keep that in mind. Now, with the Ottomans, let's go ahead and get to the Ottomans a little bit today. And we already know a little bit about what the Ottoman problem is, right? Um, the Ottomans are in a free fall, really, as we get to the 1800s. But in decline, it's been coming for a long time, right? What's, what's the issue with the Ottomans, contextually speaking, coming this time period? Right, and so the Ottomans are kind of a, it's kind of an enigma in some cases, the fact that they do last this long as they do, because the Ottomans is almost ironic as far as they have this big, huge, momentous victory. Going back to the 1490s, you know, they have a victory over Constantinople. And they take what is the center of everything, economically speaking, and they conquer it. And the Byzantine Empire is gone and replaced by this Ottoman Empire. So as soon as that happens, it's, it's bad luck if you want to call it for the Ottomans or whatever, the Europeans start exploring. And Constantinople finally is like when you used to play, I don't know, maybe you guys didn't play this, but King of the Mountain, King of the Hill type thing. You know, you get to the top and you push the guy off the top and then you're there for a little bit. Well, the Ottomans finally did that. They took Constantinople and they're King of the Hill and then all of a sudden the hills moved. Because as soon as they do that, two new continents are discovered. This is kind of like bad luck, you know, it's always something, right? And two new continents are discovered, and the Ottomans are now out. 
The Ottomans are bypassed. The transatlantic economy shifts the center of the world, I guess, to the Europe, going into Unit 4 and then especially by Unit 5. Now, there's still some stuff going on with the Ottomans, so they're not completely out of them, but they're not necessarily as dominant of a position as what they could have been. All right, had the transatlantic economy that form. Well, they go on here for a little bit. They create a pretty big navy. The Spanish defeat that eventually in the 1500s. 1600s, they're still doing well. They're controlling a lot of what's going in out of the Indian Ocean Exchange. There's still somewhat of a Silk Road that's going on. But, and so they kind of reach their height here in the 1700s, early 1700s. And then the next 200 years, it's a long, slow, drawn out, decline. And it's painful to watch in some cases, but it's a little bit different than what we see in China, which is just this massive defeat after massive defeat. You know, you have the Taiping Rebellion, and then you have first and second Opium Wars, and all the stuff we mentioned earlier. And it's just big event after big event. Well, with, China, with the Ottomans, it's really just this big empire that's just kind of shriveling up. They're called the sick man of Europe because they're just shriveling and then ultimately you know, everybody just kind of sees it coming. They're going to die pretty soon here. And it's just this long, drawn-out demise. And so that's what it's like here in the 1800s. And we'll look at some of the territorial changes that take place here. But the Ottomans switch from being this big, great power in the 1600s that's really had a couple different chances that you know, they siege Vienna twice. They're about to take over Austria-Hungary. And then they kind of lose that, and they start losing territory. That's kind of their big high times, their big heyday. And now they really can't keep up because the te uh, technological gap is getting pretty big between the Ottomans and Western Europe. The scientific revolution, the industrial revolution have made Europe jump way forward, and the Ottomans are just kind of still staying there. So we're starting to see these guys not being able to keep up with the West. And so they're losing territory after territory. This starts early in the 1800s. You know, Napoleon is fighting against the British in a lot of cases here in uh, Egypt for control of North Africa. You know, that's where he finds the big famous Rosetta Stone. He kind of stumbles across that there. And so we know that there's presence there. They're pretty much being kicked out of North Africa, the Ottomans, that is. And they're starting to become more of a Middle Eastern power, maybe in the Balkans, and they're starting to be kicked out of the Balkans because in the 1830s, the Greek independence movement, Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, all get their independence. And this raises a lot of questions here in the Balkans because the Ottomans are in free fall. And so does that mean the Russians are going to get involved? Does that mean the Austrians are going to take it over? That's a big question coming into World War I. We'll get to that later on. But we see a lot of territorial loss, and you can see everything that's happening here. They used to be a pretty big power. Look at all the way up into Vienna, almost. And then they're kicked back, and by the end of the 1800s, they're pretty much just the Middle Eastern power here. All right, now, other problems. Organizationally speaking, um, the organization that was set up that was so efficient by Suleiman back in the day with the Janissary systems and all of the different hierarchies and infrastructure, that's really starting to prove to be inefficient. There's corruption that's taken place. Um, 
they really can't, the taxation system is not working very well. There's not really many taxes to collect because you have merchants that are not able to sell anything. What used to be the Grand Bazaar in Constantinople, the center of all Silk Road, Sea Road trade, you've got merchants that can't do anything. It's kind of a sad story, right? There's nobody to sell anything to, and never had anything to sell. All right, so, and we see this technological gap growing, the janissary groups that are kind of losing influence and losing control and becoming very inefficient as a group. So there's other political issues, economic issues, as we talked about here. It's just not a good situation for the Ottomans. All right, and the Ottomans pretty soon are going to become dependent on European production just like a lot of other regions of the world. All right, so the Europeans kind of strong on their way into getting hold of some of these Ottoman marketplaces and uh, producing stuff for the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottomans can't really do anything to stop them. So the leadership is relying on British money, French money, money from other areas to maintain the empire. Not a good situation. Again, this is how the British take Egypt in the first place, right? In the age of imperialism. Through economic imperialism. So, the Ottomans are really being infiltrated, controlled by the Western European powers. It's not a good situation, all right? So, what we're going to start to see, because the answer to this in the Ottoman Empire is reform. They're going to have to make a lot of fundamental reforms. What are they going to have to do? What's the advantage that Europe has that others don't? What's that? Well, the, Europe doesn't have the new world anymore. That's all independent. What's that? It's all centered around technology and industrialization, right? So they know they're going to have to do something there. So part of their reforms are going to be that. They have to change their infrastructure. They have to change their government policies, all these kind of things. Now. The difference between what we see here with the Ottomans and China. China, it took a lot of stuff for them to realize that. The Ottomans, it's just kind of this, that, here, there. Interaction with the Europeans, that's kind of a commonplace between the two. But they're really just starting to see that our markets are running dry. We're really, they've been hit hard in the last century by this inflation of silver and all the stuff that's going on there. And so they have to make a lot of fundamental changes and redefine themselves, all right? So they're going to make some changes here. Um, reorganize the army. Get rid of some of the power of the Janissaries and that kind of stuff, uh, the power of the Ulama class, because they feel like this class has made it much more of a religious society instead of a scientific technological society. Because if you think back to the old Islamic empires in the Arab world, the Arab caliphates, they were very religious in nature, being a caliphate, but they also were at the cutting edge of scientific advancement and technology and navigational skills and all this kind of stuff. Well, in this modern world, the Ottomans have become much more focused on religion and those kind of things. So things like scientific revolution, and that's passed them by. So they're behind technologically speaking. So they have an overhaul they have to do of everything. And so they start a series of reforms, and these are called the Tanzimat reforms. 
right, that's a big thing to remember here with the Ottomans. The tens of that reforms. And all, some of the things you guys just mentioned, industrialization and that kind of stuff, this is all going to be part of that. Now, this is difficult because in Western Europe, they did this a hundred years ago. And it kind of just happened naturally. It wasn't something that the government had to set a series of reforms to do. It just was, we have this situation, these materials, this entrepreneurial class, and it just kind of happened. They had the technology doing that kind of stuff. Here, this is going to have to be forced by the government. And they don't really have the resources to do it. They're already borrowing money from the Western European powers. And so the success of these reforms is going to be pretty limited. The way that I kind of remember this with the Tanzimat reforms is it gives them just enough to limp, limp into the 1900s, to make it to World War I. It reforms them just enough to make it to World War I, but they're not going to survive World War I. They're done. Okay? So, all of this that you need, this is what they're going to try to do. But here's the trick. Modern mining operations. Well, in Europe, you've got plenty of coal and iron, all that stuff around. That's not necessarily what they have here. They have some oil, which could be good going into the 20th century. But some of the other stuff you need for this first round of industrialization, they have to get from other places. Factories to make a lot of this stuff, well, that's great. But who's controlling the cotton industry if we're trying to make clothes? That's still the British. And so we have to still go outside of our empire to get some of this stuff. So these reforms are somewhat limited. But you're starting to see a theme here. Westernization, modernization. Or let's put it this way. Modernization equals westernization. That's kind of a theme here. Because China's going to do a modernization thing, which means modernize politically. Well, we're going to take enlightened ideals, create republics, those kind of things. Modernize militarily. We're going to create an industrial-style military that has railroads and all this kind of stuff. That's what the Europeans are doing. So modernization is starting to equate to westernization, because the westerners did this 100 years before anybody else did that's why Europe is dominating the scene here in Unit 5 that we're talking about this time period. Because they're ahead of the game, thanks to what happened at the end of Unit 4. Okay, so all of these things, part of the tens of reforms, but not very successful. Not very sustaining. Just enough to get them out of the 1800s into the 1900s, but not past 1917. They're not going to make it through. They're not going to make it to the end of World War One. They're gone by then. All right. So tens of mat reforms. That's the big thing there. Now, what we're going to see coming out of this, supporters of these reforms, we're going to see a couple different movements. One is the Young Ottomans, and this is going to be somewhat of a cultural renewal, encouraging some of the tens of mat reforms getting rid of some of the old social orders of the ulamas and the janissaries and things that were kind of crippling the Ottoman Empire in their eyes, and moving a little bit more towards a secular state, and moving forward and getting rid of some of the backwardness and that kind of stuff, moving forward with the Tanzimat reforms, all right? And so this is going to change because this is still a a caliphate type mentality, a theocratic type mentality. The Sharia law is still the, the major laws here across the Ottoman Empire. 
So when you talk about secularization in the Islamic world, that's a touchy subject in this case. But in order to modernize, remember, the Europeans have already done this. And that's part of the trend of the Europeans. So if you're going to westernize and modernize, you've got to start moving towards that. All right? Now, this group didn't have over a huge amount of success because they faced a lot of issues here. But the next big thing is, what's the new big ism across the world in the 1800s? Yeah, this. Started with the French Revolution. Nationalism. And so there's going to be a new group here called the Young Turks. And this is going to be a militaristic group, a nationalist group. And they want to make this a Turkish empire. Which they've been the Ottoman Turks, but that's because the Turks rule. But they rule over Arabs, and they rule over Armenians, and they rule over Kurds, and they rule over um, Egyptians, and all these different groups. Well, now nationalism is starting to show its ugly face here in the Ottoman Empire. And that's really going to be the end of it. But this group wants to make this a Turkish nationalist empire, which means what do you have to do to the others? Kick them out, kill them, destroy them, genocide ethnically cleanse the empire. That's a dangerous phrase when you're talking this kind of stuff in the 20th century. And we see attempts at this, not just the Ottoman Empire. This is what the Nazis are trying to do. This happens in uh, well, Yugoslavia, Serbia, these areas here, beginning and end of the 20th century. It happens in the Ottoman Empire. You know, One of the biggest, most famous of these is the Armenian Genocide. We're going to start to see these things happening here. And nationalism is starting to show its ugly face in the Ottoman Empire. Nationalism doesn't have to always be ugly. I'm not saying it, it is. But a lot of times it manifests itself in, in not a very clean manner, in a very ugly manner. All right? So we're going to start to see this kind of stuff. And this is going to create a lot of tension that will be the demise of the Ottomans in World War I. All right? So the Young Turks take over and they do all this kind of stuff and put a lot of pressure on any of the ethnic minorities across the Ottoman world. Okay? So you can compare China and Ottomans. You can go back and take a look at that a little bit later on. Now, with Japan. Japan is going to be a little bit different of a situation here. Because with China and the Ottomans, is kind of this message of gloom, right? And gloom and doom. We're seeing the demise of the dynastic order in China, which is a huge shift. Right? China was a dynasty ever. Well, that would have been there since Emperor Qin back in the ancient world. So it's been around a long time. That's a big change into a republic. With the Ottomans, this incoming disaster that's going to be World War I for these guys. But the message is attempts at reform. The difference is, and that's, that's a similarity in all three of these regions. The difference is it took... Chinese, a lot of humbling to get to the point of, hey, we need to reform. We need to modernize. The whole 1800s were a century of humbling for of, of humility, I guess if I would say that. A century of humility for the Chinese. And by the 20th century, okay, we've got to reform. The Ottomans didn't take quite as much to get their attention. They already knew they were in trouble. But it's a little too late for the Ottomans for all these reforms to take place. Japan is in a different situation. And we'll talk about that a little bit here. Yes, question. Uh, were there any revolts in Japan during the Well, let's get to that, all right? So 
in Japan, given the situation, <coughs> provide some context. What do we know about Japan coming into this time period before the Europeans start showing up again? Yes. Isolated, right? They've chosen back in the what early 1600s when the Westerners, Europeans started trying to get everywhere. The East Asian mentality really across the whole region was isolationism, closed down ports. Well, that's easy to do in Japan because it's an island nation. Not quite as easy to do in China. The Europeans still find their way into China. And but Japan successfully isolates, right? And what's the political situation? Feudalism, all right? Led by who? What, what group? What clan? Well, you know it's a shogun because feudalism shoguns are dominating, right? Which one? Which clan? It starts with a T. Tokugawa. The Tokugawa clan, right? So, the Tokugawa shogunate is, they've been in control here for a couple hundred years at this point. What is their approach to Westerners? Don't. Not just isolation, but purge our society of anything Western at all. All right, they give them a chance to leave. They pretty much say, Western merchants, you're out. If you're not gone by this time, there will be severe punishments. And then anybody who is speaking a European language, head cut off. Anybody who is practicing Christianity, a European religion, burned on a cross. Anything that happens here, it's strict purging of anything Western. So it's a step beyond just closing the ports. That's what the Tokugawa clan has been doing here in Japan for a long time. Now, that's our context situation going into here, right? So this is going to be a different situation than what we saw with the Ottomans. We'll get to that in a little bit. But Japan has become somewhat of a unique society and somewhat of a powerful society. Um, this feudal system has created a unique situation here. It's been a little bit different than the uh, European feudal system. But what we see here, we know about feudal lords in the system. It's the emperor still on top, but he doesn't really have a lot of legitimate, legitimate power. The shoguns are the second class. That's where the real power is. The tokugawas are the dominant shoguns here, uh, or the dominant shogun. Then the daimyos, and then the samurai, and then everybody else, right? So that's what we see here. And they've had pretty good amount of peace. This is, I guess if you want to call it a, a golden age, it's not really that because they're not, they're isolated, so they're not connected to the rest of the world like you would think of a other golden age here. But they are prospering. And this has also done what for the Japanese societies? That nowhere else in the world really can say at this time. Being isolated and apart from Western interference means what for Japan? Self-reliant. They're self-reliant. They do not become reliant on anything European. Nowhere else in the world can say that really in the 1800s. Very little can say that at least. Because even in the Americas, they've, they've kicked out the Europeans, but you know, the Latin American countries are still pretty reliant on trade. Even North America, they're reliant on this trade and stuff they have back with the Europeans. Africa's gonna be under complete European control in the 1800s. India, China's spheres of influence, Pacific. Japan has created its own self-reliant economy, self-sustaining economy. 
under this feudalism. Their agriculture is doing pretty well, and they've even created a merchant-type society, right? The daimyos, we talked about what the daimyos were there, right? And so they've created a pretty good balance between agricultural production and urban societies. They have a decent balance there. They've created decent port cities because the only other nation they've traded with is China, and that's a pretty good one to have as a trading partner. So they've developed a merchant class. They've developed their own artisans and their own manufacturing. They've developed their own production of goods. And so they are self-sustaining, self-reliant. One of the few places that can say that outside of Europe here. And even Europe, you know, they're dependent on their colonies in a lot of cases. All right, so they have this emerging capitalist society while feudalism is going on. It's kind of an interesting mix that you don't really equate with feudalism in a lot of cases. You start to see this a little bit towards the later part of European feudalism, but anyways. All right, so uh, these merchants start developing a pretty good amount of wealth, and you know even not as much influence as the daimyo class and the samurai class, they're still the influential ones here, but more wealth in a lot of cases, which gives them some impact and some influence there. Because these daimyos have high status, but not a lot of wealth in some cases. Whereas the social inferior merchants have high wealth and not really high status. All right, so peasants do their things still. You know what peasants do. They kind of have their own lives. But this is kind of a progressive peasant class. They kind of ignore social boundaries in some cases. They're productive. They're necessary. It's not all that bad to be a Japanese peasant at the time. But what we're seeing here in the 1800s, the Tokugawa shogunate has ruled pretty strictly over the last century and a half. And they've exerted a good amount of force and power, and that's really how they've had to do it in order to keep the daimyos in check from, and to keep them from rebelling and the peasants and that kind of stuff. Well, people are starting to get a little bit tired of this going into the 1800s. The Tokugawas go through some inept ruling and officials, some corrupt rulers and those kind of things. There's some famine that hits in the early 1800s. So there's some discontent in Japan with the Tokugawa shogunate in the early 1800s. All right? Now, by yeah, early to mid-1800s, the Europeans, well, actually the United States, starts coming and knocking on Japan's door saying, hey, you guys open for business. And Japan has always said, no, isolated, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with the Western powers because we're self-sufficient, self-reliant, right? And that's kind of been the, the case here. And, you know, they go to far extremes to prove that by burning anything Western and purging that kind of stuff, whatever. Well, 1853, the United States needs somebody to trade with. Why? What do they not have a part of? China. Remember, spheres of influence in China are Japanese, pretty soon, uh, German, French, Russian, British. The United States doesn't really have a presence over there. They've got the Philippines, but well, actually, they didn't have that yet in 1953. They're wanting to get involved over here. So they think Japan is a good way to do this. 
So they send over Commodore Perry here, and they pretty much say, whatever means necessary, open up Japanese ports. So he uses diplomacy at first here, and he gets involved and tries to open up these ports and create a trade relationship and that kind of stuff. And the Europe, well, the Westerners start getting their way into China, or sorry, into Japan again. And we already know that the Tokugawa clan is starting to lose its grip on Japanese society anyways. This is going to kind of be the end of that when they force their way in here. It makes them look pretty, pretty weak here. All right, and they agree to a couple different series of unequal treaties and stuff. So the Tokugawa clan is really looking pretty badly here. And Japan is at the verge of losing its self-reliance and turning into another China and turning into another Ottoman Empire and all these things where the Westerners are going to just come in and start dominating again. So Japan has to face a decision here. What do we do? How do we handle this? Should we just go the way of the Chinese and resist and fight and probably lose? No. <coughs> Opium War One, Opium War Two, all these different things. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the episode. Tune in tomorrow to find out what we'll be learning in Al Al Alrod's class. Thank you.